0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast. Joining me this time is a returning guest and a good friend of mine from Singapore, Dave Dredge of Convex Strategies. I've had several conversations with Dave over the years. He writes a phenomenal monthly letter at the company's website, convex-strategies.com. And in a world where volatility is on the increase, I suspect that what Dave has to say is going to be even more valuable going forward than it has been uh, certainly to me over the last number of years. So uh, I thought this was a perfect time to get Dave on and talk about how the world has changed after reading his latest monthly newsletter, which was, um, as I said, just a phenomenal piece of writing and helped explain an awful lot of things that I, I think if you read it yourselves will reshape the way you think about the world we are currently in and certainly what we're headed into. So with that as a backdrop, please enjoy my conversation dave dredge well david welcome back to the podcast mate it's uh, it's always a pleasure to see you and um boy do we have some stuff to talk about this time <laughs> no kidding no kidding uh listen you wrote another phenomenal piece recently about sharp world and uh you it was really an update, asking some questions about previous pieces you've written. And, and when I read that, I thought this is the perfect way for us to frame this conversation. And, and I guess the, the sensible way to do that is to outline what Sharp World is, because um, when you read it, this light bulb goes off your head and goes, geez, that's exactly what's been going on. But as you always have this incredible talent of doing, you put it into such uh, an understandable and digestible framework. So, so why don't we kick off
1: with that? What the hell is Sharp World? <laughs> Thanks, Grant. So good to be back with you. I, I went back this morning and listened to our last conversation a year ago. And I was so excited about talking to you today about the Sharp World piece and that uh, is Sharp World closing. And so I went back to listen to what we talked about a year ago. And it turns out we've already talked about all of it, right? You know, we're just talking about the same thing a year later, amazingly. Yeah. So, you know, you know, Sharp World is my analogy for, you know this sort of fantasy amusement park, where all of the traditional mathematics of finance and economics—random walk, Gaussian, modern portfolio theory, efficient market hypothesis, Brownian motion, Markowitz uh, capital asset pricing model—all of this comes together in this perfect fantasy land where where the fiduciary investment manager's dreams all come true. Um, turns out none of it's real and and it turns out and we can talk about it as we go that it, it it's in effect been a a scam or a bribe to get the big institutions of the world the big financial fiduciary institutions in the world to recycle their in client savings into no chance of positive compounding government debt so that governments could blow through 100% debt to GDP right. and infinitely create the the debt that allows them to control the world and maintain whatever power elite status they have uh, and park all these assets on the balance sheets and of people whose capital don't understand what's getting done to them. And that's brought us to this point today where I raised the question, is, is sharp world closing? you likened Sharp World to the Big
0: Rock Candy Mountain. And I'm going to read a quote from your latest piece here, which I think perfectly encapsulates what Sharp World is. You said, In Sharp World, historical volatilities and correlations always remain constant. Geometric compounding paths are irrelevant. Tails are never fat. Leverage is not risk. Frequency matters more than magnitude. Ensemble averages dominate time averages. Hens lay soft-boiled eggs. You know, you read that, two things strike me. One... That's exactly what the world has become. And two, it's very easy to understand why people bought in to this bribe. And, and, you're, and you're right, it has been a bribe, right? It's been a bribe. And I I go backwards and forwards personally wondering whether this was a bribe that central banks put together on behalf of governments or whether governments have angled for this bribe the entire time. Because look, let's face it, It benefits governments. It doesn't necessarily benefit central banks. They're just the tools used (laughs) to—I use that term advisedly—used to um, to carry out the bribe. So, so let's talk about that bribe. Let's talk about how it started and and what it looks like now. Because the state that that bribe is in
1: is incredibly dangerous at this point in time. Yeah, I don't know. You know, chicken or the egg. Back to hens who lay soft boiled eggs. Um, Did somebody invent this this daisy chain of bad mathematics with the intention of using it to grow unlimited scale of government debt or did honest academics create something knowing that it was a oversimplification of the real world and then governments regulators financial intermediate financial system took advantage of it to create something that rewarded them as the fiduciary, at the expense of the compounding of the client, and facilitated this growth in debt. Now we talked about we've talked about in the past, you know the the last big crisis of Sharp World. Let's call it super senior tranches of subprime CDOs on Sharp World bank balance sheets that were called risk weighted assets. Now we know that in the construction, what allowed what the regulatory construct that allowed that Basel One was a negotiated agreement globally between governments, central banks, and banks. And one of the wants in that was the U.S. wanted to subsidize homeownership. And so they said, we'll let you give this capital treatment to mortgages. And the bank said, yes, please. One of the other outcomes or Bargaining chips in that conversation was the European governments saying we want to raise the standard of living of the periphery countries. And so we want to treat their government bonds the same as German government bonds and give them preferential credit treatment. And the bank said, Yes, please. And you know, now we're in this world where, and this is what I talk about in the piece, you know, we say, you know, in hindsight, we now know, and some of us knew in foresight, that, that mortgage, tranched mortgage securities on banks' balance sheets was the big uncapitalized tail risk in the system because the sharp world mathematics of BIS regulatory capital guidelines meant that banks could structure those just right and call them zero-risk weighted assets and hold no capital against the risk. Well, the tail risk today that we're living through Is the sharp world dynamic in the global management of savings, commonly known as 60-40, that the fixed income component of a balanced portfolio is risk reducing? Not only is there not capital allocated to it, it reduces the amount of capital you would otherwise hold on the other components of the portfolio. So if you think about all of the losses that are ripping through the pension fund system, wealth management system, banks who still own tons of duration assets, none of that's capitalized, right? That 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 is impairing the functioning. Obviously, we I talk in detail as an example, the LDI story in the UK. Yeah, and we'll come on to that in a second for sure. And so this is just ripping apart the system because there was you know, if, if everybody owned their house without a mortgage and house prices went down, it wouldn't matter. But if everybody owns houses on, you know, ninety-nine percent loan to value and highest prices go down, it wipes out the system. Right. And here's the problem with the global savings system where fixed income was deemed in sharp world terms as risk reducing. And if you want to reduce the risk even more, add leverage to it. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, you know, it's fascinating to me that um that
0: all this, it really was a case of just add inflation to this toxic recipe, right? It, inflation was always going to be the point where rubber meets the road. And we've had this weird situation for almost two decades now where on the one hand there's been lip service paid so we need to create inflation because we don't have enough inflation. And that obviously, that lack of inflation, that that deflationary or disinflationary impulse, whichever you want to term it, was fodder for the government to be able to sell an awful lot of debt to people, all the while talking out the other side of the mouth saying, we need inflation. Well, we all knew it was going to come. And I think we all knew the ramifications when it did. But perhaps the the thing that escaped everybody was, by taking so long to arrive, the magnitude of the problem that built up in the system for when it did arrive was going to overwhelm every defence that these guys had
1: uh my my february 2021 update is titled what if it works right right and you know, this is always the problem with zero interest rates in QE what if it works where do you think the end game to use your phraseology where does the end game of a continuous period of zero interest rates in QE end well, obviously it ends here, right? You end with the most sensitivity the world's ever seen to rising interest rates at exactly the time it works. Now you need to raise rates. we have inflation. it's destabilizing the world. It's destroying I and mean, can we talk about it in more detail later you know it's destroying the the long developed concept of Post-work life quality of life is is getting destroyed. I mean, Europe is getting torn apart. You've just lost a third or more of your retirement portfolio that's in some sort of risk parity 6040 LDI structure. And your cost of living has gone up 10, 15, 20% in, in 18 months. Yep. So your quality of life, the, you know, the the ratio of my wealth to my costs. Has been halved in a year. Yeah. So something which we
0: we nobody ever thought could happen, even though it's happened multiple times before. You use the example of the LDIs in the UK. So let's use that as an example to to walk through this because it's one of those things that happened and the ramifications of it were so immediate I guess that people focused on the ramifications without I think in many cases feeling the need to understand what had actually happened because it's like here's a problem it's a big problem this is what it's causing okay let's look at what it's causing and what the potential solutions are which as always was a central bank stepping in with a blank check but talk about the LDIs talk about what happened because I know you used the example in the sharp world
1: piece and let's kind of walk through that as a as a test case yeah, right. it goes back again to our discussion a year ago, where you, as you tend to do, you know, hone straight in on the, the the single most important line in my August 2021 update, which was because they decided to. Why would they let interest rates go up? Because yeah. they decided to, and to this day, I've never heard a better explanation of what's happened in the last six months. Because they decided to, right? And and we talked about it in that time comparing the, remember we were saying the you know the the US decided to let the Taliban take over all of Afghanistan because they decided the cost of forever preventing it was too high well likewise they decided the cost the fed decided the cost of the externality of inflation was too high to forever prevent the implications of higher interest rates so they decided to raise rates and we talked at that time about you know that you know the Joe Biden told you it would be fine because the Afghan national security forces were well trained and and armed, and we talked on that call that they said, "Don't worry, the standing repo facility and this will take care of the leverage in the non-bank financial institutions. Everything will be fine. You'll be fine without us, you know, doing QE forever." Sure enough, and then you, I write in the piece, I link in the in the Sharp World piece five of my other past pieces that all linked to and discussed BIS, Financial Stability Board, Federal Reserve, G30 Working Committee reports on leverage of the non-bank financial institutions. <laughs> and then and then everybody acts like they had no idea this was going to happen. It's unbelievable. You know, I wrote the first thing on it in June 2020, yeah. linking a financial stability board. And and so, you know, I just you know, everybody knew this was coming. I, I linked to a, a financial policy committee, Bank of England, paper from 2018, where they talk about this exact issue and say, but it's okay because we stress tested it. We shocked rates of a 100 basis points, which is more than has, that'd be a, a one in a thousand event, it's sharp world language, right? Yeah. One in a thousand event and more than's ever happened in, you know, in one week since 1992. And when we shocked it up 100 basis points, we assumed no correlation to their other assets, and no correlation across institutions. You know, we just looked at each institution. Yeah, the, the fact that they would all hit get hit with the same shock at the same time and have to liquidate at the collateral at the same time, and the fact that the collateral inevitably in a forced liquidation is going to be correlated to the shock in interest rates, and the fact that just because there hasn't been a hundred basis point shock in interest rates, as central banks moved interest rate policy rates to zero and did QE for thirty years, doesn't mean that there won't be one when they stop doing that. Right? It's just classic sharp world, and it's there. And then you know, then even in the the subsequent to it happening, Bank of England letter to the government, they said, "Well, these shocks in interest rates are outside what anybody's risk management would have seen coming." Right. So it's not there right. at all. And you know, just show a simple. You know, just you can Google LDI, and you know the whole thing will come up with websites that are basically marketing firms that run LDI strategies for UK pension funds, and they explain to you why how they do it and why they do it and how sophisticated and smart it is. And there, you know, has a great little bar chart that I stuck in there that mm-hmm. says you have you know three times leverage against your collateral. And then the other two-thirds of your assets and other higher return-seeking assets. And then if, the, if the, the bond goes down by, in that example, 16%, uh, you lose half of your collateral. And then you have to sell that amount of your other assets to get the leverage back to the same level. And it matches the change in your liabilities and everything's fine. Yeah. It misses the point that if the if the bonds go down by a third, it wipes out a hundred percent of your collateral and you've got to liquidate fifty percent of your other asset pool instantaneously. Yeah. In what any logical person, any person who hasn't been brainwashed with Sharp World would say, well, obviously there's going to be a correlation across the market if every if at the 1.4 trillion pounds LDI pension industry in the UK is all having to liquidate fifty percent of their other assets, as they've had their entire collateral pool wiped out in a day. But look, there's a vested interest in living in sharp world, right? For,
0: on the part of everybody, this is a big problem because for the governments, the central banks, the incentives are pretty obvious. For the people running these plans, in the short term, you can generate great returns, great looking. Letters to send out to your customers about how well their plans are doing, um, and the idea of, as you've talked about in, in our very first conversation, about you know planning and, and burning the brush to make sure that there isn't a terrible forest fire, is long forgotten. And you know, you posted links from the letters the Bank of England had written to the government explaining this stuff, and the the simplicity of the language used. I find stark because it's obvious they are trying to explain this to people that have no understanding of what this is all about. And they're doing it in such a way, to your point, to reinforce the idea that the Big Rock Candy Mountain is all fine. But if we're right about this idea of because they decided to, because they've decided to raise rates, and we take that to its natural conclusion, it means they've decided to induce a recession. And... One could argue that they need a recession now because it's the only thing that gets them out of this problem they're in. So why is it that markets are still 100%, let's call it 99%, convinced that the pivot is coming, and when the pivot comes, then we get the melt up
1: and everything's fine again. The Big Rock Candy Mountain lives on. And this is the point of the, I guess, the theme of the piece, the sort of uh, two-pronged question, is sharp world closing? Is Sharp World closing because everyone's leaving? Right? That's it. We're not going to own these bonds anymore. Now you've heard me say it forever. You know, that when people ask about, oh, 60-40 doesn't seem to work anymore. How do we protect the 60? I say you're missing right. the big picture. Who's <laughs> right. going to own the 40? That's <laughs> right. the big picture, right? That's the problem. Yes. And and then lever that. And so is Sharp World closing because everybody's leaving? But if everybody leaves, who's going to own? the accumulated stock of 100% of debt to GDP everywhere in the world. Now, when you and I were young in the industry and when we were getting brainwashed about Sharp World, the concept of 100% of debt to GDP was unheard of, right? okay. just unfathomable, right? It, you know, it was literally written into law in the European Union, 60% debt to GDP, yep. that's it, right? You cannot violate that. And now every major country in the world is through 100 and they're through 100 with everybody owning their bonds at zero yields negative yields in the case of yep. Europe and Japan. And and so what I then say, well, wait a minute, you can't possibly let sharp world close. And so the 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 way to keep sharp world open is to get to a recession and so people are still willing to own you know now slightly higher yielding but still low yielding bonds, still instruments that are very unlikely to compound through a significant investment cycle. Um Or will people not hold the bonds, even though they try because they don't try hard enough and they destroy their credibility and people say, well, you're never going to stop inflation. You're never going to restore price stability. So you you can't get me to own, you know, in the case of the UK. So the UK has shown that that bond yields can't go to 5%. They need to stay at 4% or lower or the whole pension system blows up. But they themselves are forecasting 13% CPI inflation this year? Who's going to own 4% long-dated bonds in a 13% inflation environment? So you either need to get to a recession fast. And this is, I've never seen such a hoped-for recession in my life. I've never That's seen crazy, so right? much enthusiasm yeah. amongst central bankers for the pending recession that we're going to get to. In fact, they're the ones who keep forecasting it, coincidentally. Yeah. right. Yeah. All right. Or, or then the other sort of path of Is sharp world closing is, are they going to close the exit gates? And this is really what I sort of get to. I think it's inevitable that they're going to close the exit gates and that you know they're going to eventually or effectively mandate recycling of domestic savings to hold these bonds. Pension funds are going to be mandated to hold the bonds. There's going to be capital controls right you're going to have forced repatriation of foreign currency you know the japan ministry of finance is repatriating foreign currency assets so that the central bank can continue to withdraw local currency assets from the market to keep the right. world happening and i think that's that's the two paths you had
0: a fantastic quote in your piece from margaret thatcher And again, you know, I went back and looked at the 70s recently in a piece I was writing about the UK, and the parallels are just remarkable to what happened in the 70s, you know, leading up to the IMF bailing out the UK. She said, Inflation destroys nations and societies as surely as invading armies do. Inflation is the parent of unemployment. It's the unseen robber of those who've saved. No policy which puts at risk the defeat of inflation, however great its short-term attraction, can be right. And, of course, as was often the case with Thatcher. A lot of the things she said, particularly around the finances of the nation, um, the finances of the EU, turn out to be absolutely correct. But if that's the case, and you say no policy which puts at risk defeating inflation, we find ourselves <laughs>
1: in a really, really tricky box here. Yeah, I, you know, it's one or the other, in my opinion. Either everyone's leaving Sharp World, in which case we're looking at a you know, a, a a revaluation of assets that's very hard for people to get their heads around. Now, in a sense, you can maybe do it this time because those assets are held by the actual capital owners, the pension pensioners, versus last time where the assets were on the bank's balance sheets yep. and the depositors had deposit guarantees from governments. And so if you wipe those out, you're wiping out the people who own banks, um, which apparently you're not allowed to do. Uh Different topic. Uh, so, so then, okay, then we can't let that happen. And so we're not going to restore price stability. We're not going to fight inflation, which really is what's going on. X, the Fed, and I listened to your, your call with James, you know, the Fed's the only one who's made any effort. And I, I'll argue and I argue in the piece what the Fed's figured out what I'm talking about, right? They know what i uh, broadly speaking, risk parity is, what levering fixed income as though it's reducing risk means. And they're doing everything in their power to keep the yield curve more inverted than it's ever been, right? Because by keeping the yield curve inverted, by keeping people believing that they're going to keep going until the recession comes, they keep people owning the back end. What you saw in the UK was the double whammy of the Bank of England only hiking 50 when the market had Gotten priced for seventy five, and then Trustnomics, I think, is what uh, James referred to it as. You know, hinted at adding two billion extra spending to the budget, and the curve steepened ten basis points and exploded. Yeah, any curve steepening right now. If you, you know, when we talked a year ago, and you, you know, you would ask me, what do you think the biggest risk is? What's the biggest fragility in the system, Dave? And remember, risk is what hurts if it happens, not what you think is going to happen. Yeah, I would have said rates going up. If you ask me right now, I'd say curve steepening, you know, a, a bearish steepening of curves and you get the LDI, UK LDI explosion in almost every market in the world, right? It happens everywhere. It just starts going off like boom, boom, boom. And and so the feds figured it out. The other guys clearly haven't figured it out. I mean, nobody, you know, nobody is tight. At best people in the, you know, the ECB said it last night, we're, almost to the point of removing accommodation. They're not tightening yet. Yeah, Most of them are. Everybody asks all the question, well, you're almost to what you had hinted at might be the neutral rate. So why don't you slow down now? Well, is neutral what it's going to take to bring Netherlands 17% annual CPI back down to two? I don't think so. I don't think 2% yields or 1.5% yields are going to, solve that problem you know you know everybody's read the Arthur Burns Mia culpa I I I wrote about it in my December 2021 update and mm-hmm. just did a side by side Arthur Burns saying this is what we did that was wrong and then this is in December 2021 and then Jay Powell saying exactly that's what we're going to do and then Arthur Burns saying this is the mistake we made and then Jay Powell saying that mistake is our policy setting right. yeah now of course Jay Powell has reversed and now, in his recent Jackson Hole speech, going back to our last conversation, it's singular. We're withdrawing the troops. That's it. No explanation, no discussion, no funny pictures. We're withdrawing the troops. So, but none of the other central banks are. Nobody. But you, you used the, an interesting phrase there. You said the, the
0: Fed's the only one who figured this out, and the others haven't. But it's hard to believe they haven't figured it out. What gives the Fed the confidence, the swagger to actually do something about it and stops the others doing something. Because I, I cannot believe that they don't understand this.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the Fed got the taste of it more than anybody else in March 2020. So right. in that third week of March 2020, when the bond markets melted down, which was the unwinding of leverage in risk parity type uh, <clears throat> constructs, and they saw the scale of that, They then came in and bought every fixed income asset in the world. Uh, They got a taste of it. So they're more aware of it. Everyone else kind of followed the Fed then and didn't really, I think, understand what was happening. But I think the Fed did understand. And Randall Quarles' work in the Financial Stability Board and stuff, everything focused very much on all that research on the U.S. Treasury market, the whole G30 thing that Tim Geithner chaired. On this topic focused on the treasury market. But but the treasury market, which is the biggest market, and everybody around the world has levered treasury positions. And so when it triggered in March 2020, got everyone's attention. But the Dutch pension funds have the leverage in Dutch bonds and the UK pension funds have the leverage in GILT and the German pension funds have the leverage in boons. And and then of course, you know, the world that I focus on. The leverage is in the foam of callable note derivative structures, which is a you know an even more dangerous form of this leverage that creates these negative convexity events. Put most simply, you own bonds that the duration extends when rates go up, and the duration shrinks when rates go down. You know, it's the worst possible thing. And and you don't account for them just like the the LDIs, you know, the IAS nineteen, all of this stuff is driven. I put it in the piece. Yeah, I think you probably saw you. Know, I I listed every country and the accounting rules that allowed pension funds to not account for the leverage, saying that it was hedging. It's hedging their liability, so it's not risk. It's reducing the capital requirement, not increasing the capital requirement to run this massive leverage in highly. You know, thirty-year guilts, forty-year gilts, fifty-year guilts, and 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 inflation links, in any logical historical environment, are highly, highly volatile. Far, far more volatile than they have been during multiple decades of of financial repression. And yet, that's what you're using to base your your measure on. You're saying because. Because of central bank behavior and government behavior and sharp world math and regulatory and accounting based upon sharp world, this low volatility, uh, uh, idiosyncratically negatively correlating fixed income product that matches the interest rate risk of my liabilities is is risk reducing ad leverage. So the Fed just seems more aware of it and, and the Fed, because of the flexibility of the U.S. economy and the U.S. financial system, et cetera, is, you know, they were slow to figure it out. You know, they they were lying about, you know, transitory and responding. I, I wrote one of my notes saying, well, they've admitted it now and they, they still haven't hiked. They still haven't tapered. They still haven't, you know, and then they did 25 and then they figured out, you know, everybody figured out fairly quickly. So having misrepresented is that more polite than saying lied misrepresented yeah, I, think, I think we don't know what you mean that's fine that that uh that inflation wasn't a problem and that there was no reason for them to adapt from all of their all-time most stimulative monetary policy settings ever in history as these inflation numbers started exploding up and they said no no that's transitory that we don't need to adjust to that and then Eventually they said, Oh, we do need to adjust. So we're gonna hike 25. Well, the market obviously says, well, wait, if 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 this now does require your response, yeah, 20,
0: so basis 25 basis points
1: isn't gonna do it because <laughs> right. you know, inflation's 700 basis points away from your target. And then they, you know, and then everybody, I mean, goes from 25 to 50 to 75 to one. And then of course, now we're back at the pivot where now everyone's, you know, just I I'm sure just coincidentally right after they were all together in Washington DC for the IMF meetings, all of a sudden everybody's now scaling back. And the guy who was going to do 75 is doing 50. And the guy who's going to do 50 is 25. And they're pulling back guidance to the extent they do it still for the December meetings and they're upping their uh, growth reduction forecast for early next year. And, and, and we're back in, like we had in late June and July, the, the pivot scenario and, and the, the, life-saving recession that that we all have always hoped for apparently is right around the corner and yet inflation's you know we're going to get German inflation while we're on the phone but we got Italian inflation today that came in at 12.8 against a 9.9 forecast yeah And, and you know at least they're Their central bank hiked their deposit rate to 1.5 yesterday. So that ought to sort it out. (laughs) Italy also reported their 53% PPI for September. It's a joke.
0: Yeah, it is a joke. The whole thing is a joke. And it it has been right the way through this quote-unquote fight against inflation. But if we put ourselves in the shoes of the central banks at this point in time, it's tough to see what they can do. I would almost argue, I won't quite go that far, but I would almost argue that this is the first time they're actually doing the smart thing. You can see what they're trying to achieve here and you can see they're trying to achieve it with the minimal amount of collateral damage. I just don't think they can get away with it. So at what point do you think they get called to make the choice that we all know has always been the choice they're going to have to make? Do we let it burn or do we do the unthinkable and monetize everything? Yeah, and mm-hmm. and, and close the gates. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, and
1: you have to. You're right. You have to close the gates when that happens. Close the gates, right? I I don't know when, but I think we get there. I think you know. I think the problem for the rest of the world, the rest of the world, is you know singular. You know, whether it's Bank of Japan or ECB or RBA, singular policy. Wait for the Fed to cause a recession. Yeah. Right. None of them are going to do anything close to what needs doing, and now they're betting that the Fed alone and the power of the reserve currency and the scale of the U.S. economy can create a global recession. And none of them are going to have to hike rates anywhere near the order that their own inflation measures would necessitate. Now, my gut feeling is is they're going to find out a that's wrong, and b they're loss of credibility in their own efforts to deal with inflation means their currencies are doomed. And if they're, if they're going to continue to, you know, Bank of England's going to continue to buy bonds at 4%, Bank of Japan's going to continue to buy bonds at 25 basis points and ECB is going to continue to buy bonds at one and a half percent, their currencies, which are already down 20, 30, 40%, depending on the country uh, are going more, they're gonna to have to restrict flows. And and you know China was out today, PBOC out today threatening people who are selling renminbi. Don't yeah. sell renminbi, you'll get hurt. Don't sell renminbi, you'll get hurt. Well, they'll they'll they've already got capital controls and they're having to threaten people. They'll tighten those right out. They have no qualms at it, but but it's gonna be a shock to the system. It's gonna be a shock to the, you know, the the free world when you get increased capital controls. then to a great extent you already do have capital controls particularly in europe where you know a number of the country's pension systems basically are already forced to hold the bulk of their right. money in domestic zero negative yielding bonds i mean it's just destroying the future for every retiree and you know you know well that you know foreign internationally managed funds can't go and market the European pensions. European pensions have to invest in European funds. Yeah. money has to stay home. And that's just going to get tightened and tightened and tightened. And, and something I'm working on, I've been talking to our uh, our mutual friend, Pippa. Uh, you know, I think probably in, like in some of my central bank friends that I talked to, one of the best tools for closing the exit gates are something known as central bank digital currencies. Yeah. And if you want to keep money from leaving your system, digitalize it and control it, right? Here's here's your token and here's what it is backed by. It's backed by these pension bonds that you own. It has to go into your pension and it has to own these bonds. And that's that's what the token is for. Let's go back to those currencies because that's, that's always been the
0: valve that was ultimately going to get opened. It was always going to be currencies. And, and I think um, the success... In inverted commerce that Japan has had for all these years played into that sharp world narrative that, hey, maybe this may just maybe whisper it quietly, but we may get away with this. We've looked at, as you said, all these currencies going lower. But ironically, that's been called the dollar going higher. Everyone's been talking about the strength <laughs> of the dollar. When when I think you're right, it's actually the weakness of these other currencies as people realize that the kind of the, the, the hotel California that they're in. Two things have happened in the last year or so that that I'd love to talk to you about since we last spoke. The first was the RBA being forced out of yield curve control all at once and the resultant effect on the bond market there. But more importantly is the Bank of Japan now coming under significant pressure, both in the maintenance of the 25 basis point peg on the 10 year. And if you look at yen swaps, you can see that they're trading double what the Banking spend a line in the sand is, and of course the currency and and the and the, the their attempts to defend the yen, which in years gone by would have had some kind of material effect, not thirty minutes spike down and then back up we go. So what's changed in terms of the much missed bond vigilantes or currency vigilantes? What's changed now for the central banks in terms of what they can expect the markets to let them get away with? I, most simply,
1: the the recognition or the release into the common narrative, to use a bin Hunt term, of inflation. Right? Inflation has gotten everyone's attention down to the common man. You know, there's been, you know, we talked about this years ago, you know, there's always been inflation. It was just parked in asset prices. Yep. The, the money and credit creation had happened. Over time, it was parked in assets. The common man didn't notice it, although he, you know, he noticed that his overlords were a lot richer, and he wasn't. But you know, the cost of things made in China, imported from China, was still cheap, so he didn't really care. But now he notices because gasoline's expensive and food's expensive, and you know, school and healthcare and the other things that you know are expensive. And so now he notices, and he even notices, and I'm sure you speak to en- enough people of your old friends, he even notices in Japan. Yeah, right. and 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 you know, you and I have lived and frequented in Japan for the last thirty years. One of the beautiful things about Japan, as long as you just thought about it in yin terms, prices didn't change stability. Much. Yeah, right. And and you know, it changed if you thought about it in dollar terms based upon the exchange rate, but but in yin terms, a, a, a bowl of ramen was a was a bowl of ramen was a, whatever a thousand yen. But now it's not. Now it's expensive. And and they only opened this month. So one of the things I will may stick right a little bit about in my uh, uh, October monthly is, you know, what happened when all the major economies in the world opened up from their COVID restrictions? Well, we know anecdotally that inflation immediately took off, in particular services inflation. So while you were closed, goods inflation boomed because people's consumption behavior change because they weren't traveling, they weren't going out, they were buying goods, they were working at home and buying goods home. And But once everything's opened up, service inflation explodes. And in particular, wage inflation. And in particular, in places like Singapore, who rely on a significant quantum of foreign labor, who all got sent home Found other jobs and weren't available to come back. Well, think about Japan. Nobody in the world require you know requires as much outsourced labor because of the aging population dynamic yep. there, and it's just about to become you know it's it's you know in, in a snap of the finger it's going to become the number one tourist destination in the world when it opens back up again at one hundred and fifty dollar yen, and and there's nobody to work in the hotels and drive the buses and. You know they're out actively competing for people. They're in they're they're in Singapore trying to mass recruit experienced waiting staff. You know that you know if if you're a foreigner working in Singapore, why don't you come to Japan? They're in the U.S. going college by college, saying, "Do you want to come work in Japan?" And and you know we saw today. I don't know if you saw this morning the Tokyo CPI numbers came out three and a half percent. You know That's the the Japan nationwide numbers track. You know point for point exactly with the Tokyo number three and a half percent, you know, versus a a forecast of 3.1 or 3.2. And so that divergence from forecast, you know, I don't think is a coincidence that it's in the month that on October 11th, they opened to foreign travel again. And it's already fed through that fast. November is going to be worse. And, you know, so, you know, it's gotten everyone's attention. It puts the central banks in a really tough spot. The, the, implications of sixty forty not working already was laid bare in March 2020. You saw a huge shift to people trying to own other protection, which has had its implications on the performance of equity vol, particularly in the, you know, the easy to buy. We talked, funny enough, we talked about this a year ago too, Mm -hmm. that that, uh, equity vol is not cheap and not efficient and will not be efficient as a hedge. And it has not been implications for some other mutual friends of ours. And, uh, and so people are aware of it and people are responding. And so people don't want to own bonds. People don't want to, you know, and now the people who blindly live in sharp world that own bonds with leverage are having, you know, performance, P&L, capital damaging implications that they're forced to respond to. You know, the the LDI guys in, in the UK had to sell their gilts. Yeah. <laughs> they had no choice. Right, they had to, and and the same is going on in Japan. And obviously, what's driving the you, you know I can go into more detail than your listeners would ever want to hear about what's driving the uh, swap market in Japan as it pulls away from the bond market, and that has to do again with levered, implicit leverage in short volatility derivative structures, callable structures, callable notes, callable deposits, Yuridashi, all of these things our short convexity and force the hedging bank to pay delta as it goes up to they all have positive vanna and volga problems second and third order derivative problems where the the dvo1 hedging need in the swap space is way 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 larger than the available dvo1 in the jgb market and so unless the Bank of Japan, if it keeps going, unless the Bank of Japan wants to come and intervene in swaps, it can just keep going because they can't provide enough liquidity in the available JGBs right. to offset the size. You know, think about the the, the bond market as the, as the trunk of the tree and the derivative as the sort of canopy of the tree overlay. Well, in Japan, more than anywhere else, that trunk looks like a toothpick. Because your 30 years of zero interest rates and suppressed volatility, particularly around interest rates, but the implications across other all other asset classes, where the financial repression that drives the appetite for enhanced yield, short volatility embedded structured products, is a stock larger than anything the world's ever seen.
0: Well, you had a great chart in the October piece showing the uh, I think it was euro and dollar 10-year swaps versus JGB. Um, And you you had that line in the sand of the 25 basis point cap on the 10-year. And when you look at those two charts in isolation, the 10-year and the Japanese swap, okay, you zoom in, you go, okay, the swap is trading at double what the cap is. So that looks meaningful. But then you zoom out and you add in the lines that you did of the euro and the US dollar, and you realize just how big a problem this is because those swaps have, as you say, have absolutely exploded. So how does this resolve itself? Because does it make Japan the place where everybody goes because they can see this is now the weak point here? Yes, Europe are not doing enough, but they're doing something. The Fed, as you've pointed out, is doing something. Japan isn't, but they're not doing it because they can't. And if they can't, then we've got an asymmetric opportunity here to make some money.
1: Yeah, you, you've heard another dredgesm. All pegs in badly, all pegs end. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh, yes, and and you know this comes back to self organized criticality. I I think I quoted it in the last year's piece. Self organized criticality is a law of nature for which there is no dispensation. Sand piles will find a natural equilibrium. You don't know yep. when you can prop it up, but you know you can keep putting out. The forest fire over and over again but eventually all of yellowstone national park is going to burn down because you're just increasing the fragility and so my my analogy in the in the piece this month was you know that the jgb market is a is a beach ball that they're trying to hold underwater and so when when the when the water level of tokyo harbor let's define the water level as the 10-year swap rate was below the line they drawn on the on the side of the rock saying we're going to keep this beach ball below this line it was easy to keep the beach ball below that line because the water level was below that line but as that water level goes above holding that beach ball under the water gets harder and harder and the the 10 year dollar swap and the 10 year euro swap represent the water level of the outside sea yeah now And the transmission of that water level into Tokyo Harbor is the FX rate and its impact on inflation. And so that is going to keep pushing up the water level. And they're trying to hold that ball. And we all know that when you let go of that ball, it doesn't just gently float to the surface, right? It blows through the surface and theoretically blows through the surface to catch up with the other two. I mean, euro swap yields were lower than Japan swap yields two years ago. Yep. Right. A year ago, virtually, You're, you know, and 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 look what happened when they finally admitted, shit, we got to do something. And and once you, you know, the market generally believes the the spew coming out of Kuroda's mouth that he's sticking with this, even though his term ends in March. And I'd be shocked if whoever the replacement is willing to take the job, and you know, and squeeze in behind him and grab that beach ball. <laughs> <laughs> and i'll try to hold on to it you know well your feet don't touch the bottom anymore and and so you know somewhere between now and march you know if they offered me the job i'd say okay i'll take it but he's got to unwind it first yeah i, I don't know if Nicasso or amamia or any of the other candidates think that way i, I have some guesses on how they think right but, uh so and and then you know, the other thing, which I wrote about, and I think I remember you discussed it on somebody else's podcast. You know, at various paces, when the thing heats up, you can start to do the math and say, well, they're going to run out of bonds. Now, and now, so far, every time it starts to look bad, the the pivot story starts to circulate around the rest of the world, some of the pressure comes off. But but you know, in the 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 day that the Bank of England stepped in to save the world and bought one and a half billion of bonds in the UK was on the front page of every magazine, every yeah. article, every news show. Bank of England buys one and a half billion of bonds, saves the world. Well, that day in Japan, they bought six billion worth yeah. of bonds and they called it a Thursday. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right. It was just just another day. They're buying six billion, 10 billion, 12 billion every day. And then Kuroda today announcing, you know, in his policy meeting that they're sticking with it, says, we don't think that the YCC policy has an impact on the weakening of the yen. Right.
0: But, but look, what, what are they going to say at this point? But it's, it's funny, when, that, when the LDI thing happened, I was immediately reminded of your sandpile analogy, right? Because who cares about $2 billion from Trustnomics? <laughs> It doesn't yeah. matter, right? In, in in the scheme of things, it's a rounding error, but it was enough to tip things over. Yeah. And who cares that the Bank of England buys one and a half billion bonds? It doesn't save the world, but hey, it kind of does because we need it to. And, and that seems to be the point we're at now. Is that? And I've, I've bored myself to death with this quote, but I'm going to use it again I, in an interview I did with Jeff Gundlach because I think it's so important. You know, we, we were talking about fear and greed, and and he said to me. Look, fear and greed are strong emotions, but there's one thing that's more powerful than both, and that's need. He said, when you need to do something, you don't have a choice. And it feels now that we've we've gone straight through the the need part to the part where it doesn't really matter what you need to do. You're going to do it, but it's not going to have any effect at this point. We seem to be past that. We seem to be in the end game now. And, and it's happening so fast. What do you think happens from here as as all the things that we've talked about in sharp will begin to unravel how does that snake out into the financial world first because I presume that's the order of the transmission mechanism maybe I'm wrong and you, you'll correct me and then into the real world yeah uh, the
1: uh, you know the, the sensitivity is the lack of capital supporting the risk in the 40 levered in throughout the the Savings management of the world, pension funds, banks, wealth management, hedge funds, insurance companies, everybody in sharp world has mismeasured the risk of fixed income. And, and central banks have this unenviable task because they caused it with their moral hazard of Greenspan put behavior and of vol suppression. Now they're in this unenviable task. If they raise rates too fast or too far, it blows up the the back end of every yield curve because of this dynamic. If they don't raise rates fast enough and they lose any inflation credibility they have left and curves start to steepen, it blows up the back end of every market. And so again, Sand piles will do what sand piles do, and there's almost no way around it. Now, you can play with the timing and you can play with the how and whether it topples to the left or it topples to the right, and you can pick and choose. But, you know, once there's too much fire risk, there's you can't control a fire. And I, it's hard to come up with a scenario that we're not there. And then the question is, how does it play out? Does it play out in my sort of option one? Everybody leaves Sharp World. Yeah, and and you're going to have to write down all of this debt, and it's all going to get, you know, wiped out, and the 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 capital that was holding it is going to get nuked, and and yeah. as as James, I think James underestimates the transition from three times levered to no leverage, and the price action that that entails. He, yeah, I think he said something along the lines of you know, yeah, somebody's going to come in with fresh capital and buy it at eighty-five cents. Well not if it's three times leverage going to, you know, it's going to buy it at 33 cents. Right. If it's going to go to, you know, just like housing prices, right? You know, the, the the housing market didn't go down a little bit when you went from 99% loan to value to 50% loan to value. It went down 50%. Right? So so that's one. Everybody leaves Sharp World and we go through that cleanse and we have extreme recession, default cycle, etc. Or the one that, I'll argue, most people think is more likely, probably me included. We do what's happening now where the Bank of England steps in and buys the bonds again, or the ECB steps in and buys the bonds again, where Bank of Japan continues to buy the bonds. And we never get inflation under control. And you have to close the exit gates and force people to stay in Sharp World. And capital becomes like oil and food, it becomes a scarce resource mm-hmm. that nobody will share with anybody else, right? And, you know, capital gets friend just like other critical resources. And we start down the dangerous path that we've all talked about before of that sociopolitical destabilization of the breakdown of trust between the governed and the governing when you destroy the purchasing power of the piece of paper that they were supposed to rely on, and that breaks out into civil wars, which has been happening since yeah. 2011, Arab Spring, and you know, Middle East, North Africa, Ukraine, it spills over to cross-border wars and the war friction and the, the saber rattling between the U.S. and Russia now, and the U.S. and China and major global uh, powers, not just. Frisky neighbors, and you know, it starts with internal and then becomes external, and then it's people you don't care about, and then it's people who have nuclear weapons. One side has a nuclear, the other side doesn't, and then both sides have a nuclear. You know, it's India and Pakistan, and both sides have nuclear weapons, and now you got to choose sides. And you know, history says that's the far more dangerous path, but we've become so programmed to that path since the last time it happened. World War II nice. Nice. that we've forgotten what was the whole purpose of Bretton Woods, which again we talked about a year ago. You know, Bretton Woods was guy sitting around saying, let's not do that again. Yeah. You know, let's not do it again. And then here we are. And and their answer, I mean, you know, we're not making stuff up. The Bank of England is saying we have to hold bonds at four percent while inflation's in the teens. Right. The ECB is, you know, trying to keep the back end of their yield curve at in the twos, while many of the kind, you know, the ECB is the biggest, I was on a, I, I was, you know, doing my civil service out here, Singapore Financial Market Association conference panel on on geopolitics. Not that I know anything particular about geopolitics. I just tell the same story. It's a sand pile and it's fragile and it's fragile because they've lost control of price stability. And, and, and they said, you know, they ask all the other panel members who are very smart people that think about this stuff, you know, what's the, What's the key geopolitical risk? And, you know, it's Russia or it's China. It's China and Taiwan, Russia and Ukraine. I said, well, it's Europe. Europe has a a completely unworkable construct. It has always been an unworkable construct. And we were going to get around it because they were going to fix it later. And we had the will to do so and, you know, whatever it takes without understanding what it takes. And... You know, again, I used in the, the piece, just the example of the Netherlands. You know, the Netherlands has 17% CPI has a, you know, 2% bond market and, and has to stay there. And again, you know, not to critique your previous guests, you know, to, to say that that the Dutch pension funds that do LDI are fine because they're smarter and more sophisticated is like saying, you know, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch were fine because they were really smart and sophisticated. But you know, two of them went under and two of them had to be bailed out. Because it's no fault of theirs. They're smart and sophisticated in sharp world. And right. Sharp world says what's they're doing is is risk reducing. They call these levered interest rate positions hedging. <laughs> they call it hedging, all right? Which is exactly what the old, you know, the Korean shipbuilding companies called the Kikos. They were hedging their future export proceeds by writing massively levered call options on the dollar. Well, that's you know the reason you know nobody can buy bonds because all of these pension funds and risk parity sharp world guys have already committed to buy the bonds at last year's prices. Right,
0: but- it's fascinating, right? because risk happens fast. And what we're seeing now, all those illustrations you just gave, point to this idea that in this low volatility world we've lived in, you can write those contracts because, hey, volatility, if it does pop up, it gets squelched and everything goes back to normal. But what we've seen in the move index recently, particularly, should disavow a few people of that notion. You know, we've we've gotten to places in the move index that we shouldn't be at the standard deviations away from the norm. And that is a huge red flag. So what does all this mean for vol now? Because if we don't live in a low vol world anymore, or at least in a world where vol can be easily suppressed and made artificially low, we're seeing that geopolitically. There's no low vol geopolitics anymore. It's all high vol. What does that mean, David, if we are now in a high vol world?
1: I think as that volatility as the as the pulling apart of so sharp world in a in a balanced portfolio perspective the two key components are volatility and correlation and and we've come out of a multi-year multi-decade artificiality of of fixed income volatility and in correlation to growth assets created by a, a central an explicit central bank reaction function and and as we unwind that, the destruction of capital that is insufficient to support that risk because it was misrepresented, mismeasured, misaccounted for, means that volatility stays for a very long time in, in those particular areas. Now, if you think about it, I mean, I'm obviously simplifying the world, but... People measured risk of their equity portfolio inside the balance portfolio. They said, well, the equity portfolio is the risk. I mean, literally most Aussie superannuation funds define their risk as the equity component. That's it. Everything else is defensive, doesn't count. Yeah. All right. So this is the risk. So we have capital allocated against it. And then we have this fixed income portion, levered or whatever, and the other diversifying strategies that reduce the risk so we can own a few more equities on the capital we've allocated against it. And so equities losses that have been substantial, but they aren't destroying the world, right? The world's not screaming for a bailout because equity markets are down because that was capital set aside to take equity losses. Yeah. But the fixed income side, on the other hand, necessitates bailing out systems. You know, Bank of England buying it, Bank of Korea came out again yesterday with a whole sweeping range of. October 08 equivalent liquidity measures to try to solve their equivalent problem where these callable note structures are a big part of it. So, you know, they opened up the equivalent of their discount window, their repo facility to non-banks. it's exactly what the Bank of England is going to do for pension funds. They're going to give them access to the repo facility so you don't have to liquidate assets when you have this liquidity problem. You can just repo them and then you expand as the Bank of Korea did yesterday as the ECB did in In march 2020 you expand the collateral to well anything and and so this is how it evolves and and that keeps the volatility up in interest rates because you're you're trapped right the 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 volatility structures that were on the other side of these callable no bermudan you know everybody is familiar with scripts of pution bur- bur- Swaptions that get embedded in every callable note structure that gets created and every bond that was sold in the last 5 years was callable you know 100% you know, is a 20 year two year call right and and as as rates go up the duration of those extends to the terminal date and, and so you're getting more duration as interest rates rise and, and you were accounting for it. Everybody changed the accounting rules so that Taiwanese insurance companies and German pension funds could account for them as the duration of the call day. And all of a sudden their duration's exploding at the time. Well, shouldn't the pensions and insurance companies be taking advantage of these higher bond yields right. and their bond sellers, which is why the Bank of Korea reactivates the bond stabilization fund from October 08 and March 2020. As they're hiking rates to fight inflation. <laughs> you know, same with the Bank of England. You know, ECB does their first rate hike in known memory in July and spends the entire press conference and announcement talking about the transmission protection instrument, how they're going to keep buying bonds. They hike again last night and spends most of the time talking about how they're going to keep reinvesting all of their assets. They're not going to taper at all. And, and you know, I'm going to stick it in the uh the October updates, and pictures, including balance sheets. So if you look at the bank's balance sheets, nobody's balance sheet is everybody's balance sheet, you know, grew exponentially after March 2020 to levels that nobody could have ever imagined, even after QE was innovated in 09. And nobody shrunk it. Everybody's fighting the worst inflationary surge. In modern central banking history, with the largest all-time balance sheets, you know, it's an it's a no-win situation. I, I don't see any way out of it. So that keeps interest rate volatility, and so the the Vanna and Volga of all these vol structures that got delivered into the market just keeps volatility. Everyone's trapped in this stuff, and and God help us if the if the German pension funds or the Taiwanese insurance companies call the structuring banks up and say, we want to unwind these things, right? Because right. you know, they're the ones that are short of the vol. You know, and, and then in Japan, this is obviously, and, and you know, these products that are complex, sophisticated institutional products in the rest of the world are showed to, you know, retail bank depositors in Japan. Japan, you walk in, you get a 20-year, one-year call deposit. And then for the last 20 years, that's rolled every year. You go in and you take out what you need for your retirement home and your grandkids schooling and then you roll it again, then you roll it again. But when you show up this year, you're not getting your money back. Right. They're going to say, well, it's a 20-year deposit now, sir. You're like, well, I I need it. I need some of it. So what's it going to you know, cost me to break that 20-year deposit? Well, present valuing at the current 20-year rate to last year's one-year rate, plus buying back the vol that you're short in it, you're going to get about 40 cents on the dollar. Yeah. And then you know, the whole Japanese retail deposit base is going to say, hold on a second. Which is, this is why YCC why still exists. YCC doesn't exist because they think it has anything whatsoever to do with inflation or economic growth or, right. as I always say, you know, what if it works? I always ask them, what if it works? And then they'll explain to me in their best sharp world logic that based upon their 20 years of experience, they know it won't work. And then you say, well, why are you doing it? They so say we we don't want to answer that question. Well, that,
0: right, exactly right. That comes back down to that idea of need, right? They're doing it because they have to do it because the the ramifications for that going wrong are too big. I keep getting one word rattling around my head, and I, and I hate to bring it up, but I, I I have to ask you, what does all this mean for gold? Because mm. it it seems to me every, every way we come at this, it seems to me that gold is going to play some kind of significant role in. Whichever way this goes.
1: Well, in the in the closing the exit gate scenario, I think gold does very well. I think crypto does very well. Mm-hmm. Right? I think crypto is a is an inevitable beneficiary. If people start to get the whiff, I mean, who have been the you know, relatively speaking, the biggest buyers of crypto have been from countries with capital controls. Yeah. Right, uh, China, Korea, you know, and so if, if capital controls start to spread, I think crypto is a big beneficiary. If if they are going to reinforce sharp world, then then gold becomes an obvious hiding place. Right now, in the in the in the '30s, they confiscated it, and I mm-hmm. wouldn't put it past them to confiscate it and confiscate crypto when they if they decide they feel like they have to. So those types of things I would expect to perform very, very well. Now, they perform very badly. People, when you see the criticisms of all the time, oh, people said that the Bitcoin was going to be a hedge for inflation. It turned out you know, it wasn't. Well, that's wrong. It was a very good hedge for inflation when the inflation was being created. So when the money supply was being exponentially exploded, right. which is the creation of the inflation, it was a very good hedge. Once the inflation became apparent in their measure of inflation, the CPI and the Fed reacted to it, then crypto goes down because they're fighting inflation. So when they were creating inflation and money supply growth was going up at rates unseen, crypto was a very good hedging and gold did pretty well as well. Yeah. Since they've been shrinking money supply at a very rapid pace, the Fed, uh, crypto and gold have not done well. And the dollar has been the winner, right? The dollar has outperformed everything because it's been the place where where the contraction is actually taking place, the fight against inflation. So I would say, you know, everybody misunderstands what inflation actually is and in the creation of the inflation and the credit and money creation post-March 2020, crypto did really well. And once they people realized they had to fight inflation or had to reverse it which is when it starts showing up in cpi then crypto and gold have done quite badly because the fed is is fighting it now feds taking inflation out of the system or at least trying to um, the rest of the world not so much and and if if that inflation gets sort of reignited every time they have one of these pivot uh, attitudes you know we're gonna you know we're gonna go through maybe two months again of pivot like we did in late june and july and and maintain the rest of the world in particular, significantly, historically negative real rates mm-hmm. on a policy setting. And we're going to get into the first quarter and inflation still going up. I don't think it's a coincidence that as they've lied about inflation immediately returning to target every you know quarterly projection out of the ECB and the Bank of Japan and every forecast they have actual inflation overshoots. I don't think it's a coincidence that they've had negative real policy rates to the extreme right. all the way along. You know, and the, the ECB, you know, actually last year was talking about it. Well, we have so much credibility that the market expects inflation to go back because they believe we'll respond to it. So we don't have to respond to it because it, it'll correct anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's the ultimate
0: Jedi mind check if you think about it. Well, let's finish up and talk a little bit about convexity because this is this is you know what you guys are, are so good at doing. Let's talk about the need for convexity and how you can. Introduce the right kind of convexity at this point, because when you get to these points, generally, the things you need you've been priced out of. You're too late, and the pricing structures work in advance of everyone's recognition of of the problem they need to solve. So, so talk a little bit about uh, about convexity, the need for it, and and how you go about introducing it into a portfolio at this point.
1: Well, you've heard me say it a thousand times. The only true alpha is convexity. You know, everything else was was. Levered carry, and yeah. asked around a, a normal probability distribution, and explained away in the tails. Uh, Convexity, you know, and I lead off every every time I speak in front of a you know pension fund conference. I always start my presentation with, "I'm making one big assumption here, and what I've prepared to talk to you guys about today, and that assumption is that we all share share a common objective." Of compounded return, geometrically compounding returns for our clients. If that's not what you guys' objective is, you might as well leave because you're not going to like what I have to say. <laughs> Nobody leaves, and then they all come up to me afterwards and say, "Oh, we, you know, we don't look at the world that way." And I said, oh, "I thought we agreed that your objective was compounding returns." It turns out it's not. It. The key to compounding is performance in the wings, right? The, the the big numbers are what contribute to the compounding, and how you. Perform back to my Formula One race car analogy. It's the acceleration and deceleration that creates separation. It's the guy with the best brakes who can drive the fastest in the good parts and then most efficiently handle the dangerous parts, put the brakes on, get around the sharp corner, come out the other side, accelerating that will separate himself. The guy who's structured his car—the sixty forty example—risk management in the financial industry isn't to put good brakes on the car and drive faster. It's to just drive slower. Right? Let's yeah. take forty percent out of the engine based upon a, a look back of how bad the you know the two the two standard deviation, worst curve we've seen in the last lap and a half and assume we won't see anything worse than that. And it's <laughs> 60% of speed, we probably won't crash. And so we go at 60% no matter what part of the racetrack we're in. And a lot of the racetrack, that does, you don't notice the difference between the guy with a full engine and good brakes because the track is curvy and nobody goes too fast and nothing's too dangerous. But as soon as you hit a straightaway, the guy with the full engine disappears, slams the brakes on, comes out the other side. But the guy driving 60% goes along slowly down the straightaway and gets to the curve and is struggling to stay on the course and is hoping that the Fed comes in and grabs the street and straightens out a little bit for them before they go off the course. And, and, you know, they've optimized, as I always say, you know, their optimization is to average lap speed under assumption that they start over equal again each lap because that's the fiduciary's mindset. Yeah, I, My benchmark is an annual average return, but the individual is on a compounding path. He cares about 40 laps of separation. And, and, and that's what convexity, good convexity does. Now, convexity is hard to create. You know, We talked about it last time. The only place vol, in essence, is easy to buy is the VIX. And that's where everybody buys it. And so it's really cost inefficient. And that has implications for how you can hedge yourself. But the world of volatility uh, is a hell of a lot bigger than S&P vol. All right, FX vault and interest rate vault dwarf equity vault in the world of volatility, credit, and commodities, and you know all sorts of stuff going on in the world. Now, a convexity a hedging, a tail risk manager's job is to go and find stuff that's efficient, and, and 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 the good thing is, in sharp world, the cheapest insurance is where the risk is the biggest. Because they're selling fire insurance based upon the historical frequency of lightning strikes. (laughs) And so the longer you've gone without a fire, the cheaper the insurance is. But we know the biggest risk is the forest that's gone the longest without a fire. Because when it burns, it's going to really do some damage. And so, you know, again, the obvious example, super senior tranches of subprime CDOs. They were the most risky when it was the cheapest ever to short them. Yeah. Because of the leverage that had built up, driving them down to being the equivalent of the U.S. Treasury when they had enormously more risk and no capital supporting that risk. And so, you know, our job, our task, if you will, and what we try to do is to go out and find the exactly these uncapitalized tails. Where are the uncapitalized tails where sharp world participants and regulations are allowing people to apply leverage either explicitly like an LDI or implicitly through callable note structures or through tarfs and tarns and equity in, in FX space or through accumulators and Chinese stocks in Hong Kong and and these things. And there's, you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff and all kinds of opportunities. You just need to position yourself to absorb it when it comes available. And and as you say, there's times, you know, last summer you could have bought all of the interest rate volatility in the world for nothing yeah and and when you know last we talked yeah you know I said that's what we're doing right people would sell us interest rate vol for nothing and, we had, and you know by the end of October last year that all blew up it started blowing up and has kept blowing up and if you look at the the move index and more so if you look at euro rate volatility it blew up in October never came back down and then yeah. blew up again in, in in February and March and never came back down and then blew up again in June never came back down and then blew up again in September and never came back down and and the system's trapped right it's it doesn't have the capital to absorb the losses and there's nobody to come in and resupply it and 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 the big pain is still sitting on it the end owners haven't called up and said I want to unwind that stuff and so there's still more risk out there. The FX space, likewise, you know, amazing. Like in the way the world works, if you'd if if we talked in January, and you asked me what's the cheapest vol in the world, Dave, I probably wouldn't have told you because I was active buying it at the time. But if you'd asked me, I would have said Euro FX fall, Euro Euro crosses FX fall, cheapest vol in the whole world in January and early February. Then something happened and it stopped being cheap, right? Russia right. invaded Ukraine and it immediately wasn't cheap. It's funny how the most clogged part of the forest seems to find the spark. Yeah. Yeah. Always. amazing. Always. It's such a coincidence, right? Yeah. And it then, just? you know, and then after that, well, you know, then, then obviously Japan interest rates and Japan FX were cheap and then it blew up in March. And then what was the cheapest thing for the longest time was China FX fault. Cheapest vault in the whole world. Yeah, how can it be? I mean, nowhere is there more accumulated fire risk than China, who was virtually the sole contributor to global credit impulse for a decade. And and you know, was, and the entire property sector is going under, and there's a political struggle of epic proportion that you know someday will be a a sci-fi movie, and and. And for the longest time, absolutely cheapest ball in the world. And then, you know, what's been going on with, you, nobody talks about it, but the devaluation of of the renminbi is more than the devaluation when it was in 2015 when they devalued it. You know, and so it, it goes on and on. And so, you know, there is there are times, uh, October, November 08 when, you know, everything in our book gets, you know, monetized everybody calls and begs to buy it back now the nice thing in november 08 they got recapitalized and came and literally begged to buy it back we got the money now can we get out of this stuff and you know everybody in sharp world they had an incentive to cleanse the books because nobody was getting paid a bonus in 08 so right. they want to get everything you know kitchen sink everything and start fresh now we haven't hit that yet this year but you know there was times in the last six weeks or it looked like, you know, last Friday, it looked like people were like, shit, it might be time to catch and sink it. I sent a note out to some people and saying, this is getting troublesome. They better respond. And word got out and they responded, right? They leaked the story out to the Wall Street Journal. And then, you know, then you're on to the next thing and you're on to the next thing. And it's not things that people need to understand in terms of managing that convexity. It's not about timing one side or the other. It's about the relationship between the two. Right, you know, vol might be cheap when asset prices are high, or vol might be high when asset prices are cheap. It's just the relation. It's like, you know, JP Morgan. They don't s- stop taking deposits because they think interest rates are high. Right. What they care about is if I can get non-recourse leverage at this price and lend it out at that price, I have a a asset liability mix that allows me to make money no matter what. But you know, and, and you may say, oh, you know, you, you may notice that JP Morgan and, and Citibank don't shut down their deposit-taking activity because deposits cost money. Right, right. Um, Let me ask you one last question based on, on what you just said. There. Have you
0: noticed that people's attitudes to this are changing? Is the penny finally dropping that we are in a very different world now and people need to completely rethink the way they not only invest, but more importantly, manage the tails? Yes,
1: yes. I mean, the, the, the acceptance that the 40 ain't a hedge mm-hmm. is accepted right so you know, the argument forever yeah 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 we know it's not very good but if we apply some leverage to it at least that has some positive carry and you know it's good enough and we in our our methodology we ignore the volatility and correl- correlation risk anyway so now that's come home to slap everybody they still yeah. you know they still struggle with the concept of Time and magnitude, right? The 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 Benoit Mandelbrot, you know, the flaw in the in the Gaussian mathematics and the sharp world mathematics is that it misses the two most important things in the compounding path: time and magnitude. It's focused on on an ensemble single right, period right. and frequency, and that's irrelevant. And so people still struggle with it because they they everybody lives in sharp world everybody's grown up in sharp world and 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 sharp world will give you an absolute precise wrong number, and so you, you think about it. You know I go through this every day. Go and talk to somebody who who's a sharp world person, right? Lives in sharp world, and you say, well, look your 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 sharp world methodologies looking backwards didn't work. It was rubbish. I mean, even during the perfect period for sharp world you would have been far better off with a convex barbell strategy. Yeah. It hasn't worked. So, and then, then looking backwards, look, this convex strategy worked. It's empirically supported. And they say, okay, so what should we do going forward? And they say, okay, well, Dave, what what's your expected return? I say, oh, I don't have one because I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to build a portfolio that performs when the unknown happens. And you're like, yeah, but my sharp world stuff gives me an expected return of seven. Yeah, but you know what's wrong. You you know you, that's what you said in the backwards period, and it didn't give yeah. you that return yeah. of seven. Well, yeah, but it's precisely wrong. Well, right? that's it. Precision was always
0: more important yeah. than the other components. It's always if it's a precise number, we can believe it, right? If it's to two decimal places, so
1: much the better. Yeah, as as you know, Hayek said in his uh, Nobel Prize lecture. Right? The, the the economic profession has decided to focus on the things they can measure. <laughs> you know, those we can measure it. Therefore, that's what matters. Yeah. yeah, even though it's completely irrelevant to anything, and and so it's still you know it's still always a challenge. But um, you know, we're we've been in business for twelve years, so there's there's enough people out there that saw the wisdom, and obviously the guys who saw the wisdom benefited massively because they drove fast for a long yeah. period of where driving fast was uniquely available right 2019 2020 after march 2021 right you kept driving fast you kept driving fast and you kept cutting off uh, the, the the turns in march 2020 and all of this year and you know and and they're all still sitting there with full capacity in the engine and brakes that have served them incredibly well throughout the year and you look a lot better than the the LDI guy whose right. levered fixed income has wiped out most of their capital and to rebalance their leverage, they've sold off 50% of their other assets at a 30% discount. Is he going to compound it back again? Is he going to come out the other side? He's got no hope in hell.
0: No, not a chance. Not a chance.
1: And, and so, you know, that's, that's the answer to the problem. It's not an easy answer because, uh, you know, you can't, you can't optimize to average lap speed you have to look at the the terminal of 40 laps and optimize back over 40 I, laps yeah, yeah which is which gives you a very different answer it says own the straddle <laughs> average lap speed says well probabilistically driving at 60 percent is probably on average about right so sell the yeah. straddle and, yeah and it's wrong
0: well, Dave, look, it's been a fascinating. I've just seen, I've, I've taken an hour and a half of your evening, for which I apologize, but it's just too fascinating to to not do that. So, look, my thanks, as always, for you to take the time and to have this conversation. And please, for, for people out there that haven't listened to our previous conversations, hopefully they'll listen to this one and go back and listen to the other one, which is, I think, as valuable now as it was back then. But let them know where they can find out more
1: about Convex Strategies and how to get in touch with you and Jules. Yeah. So we have a little website, convex-strategies.com. We post up my portion of the, the monthly letter each month. There's other stuff in the letter that goes to the investors that talks yep. more specifics about some of the markets we're involved in. But the big picture stuff goes up every month. And I don't know how many years are up there, but there's a lot. And, and they're all pretty interesting. And they all build a pretty interesting story about how to manage risk and imbalances in the system and And the the inevitable outcomes
0: of Sharp World. Yeah, it's an incredible body of work and and frankly a phenomenal testament to your ability to to understand this stuff forward-looking rather than backward-looking. So, you know, congrats on all that and I say I hope people listening to this will go back, dig into that archive because you can pull a piece out at random and I guarantee you you'll not only enjoy reading it because it's so accessible but you'll learn a hell of a lot. So Dave, thank you as always for doing this. Um, I really appreciate it. And and let's do it again soon because I think things are going to start moving even quicker. Fantastic, Grant. It's always such fun chatting with you. really appreciate it. All right, take care. Have a nice evening. Thanks, David. Well, I promised you an interesting conversation and uh, Dave is always that. His window to the world and the way he's able to communicate these complex ideas is, in my mind, unparalleled. So I would... As I said in the uh, in the conversation, I would heartily encourage you to go back and listen to our conversation from around about a year ago because what Dave had to say there still applies. Uh, and also visit the company's website and sign up to get Dave's pieces whenever he releases them every month because um, each one uh, is incredibly thought-provoking and just brilliantly communicated a series of, of highly complex ideas. You'll find all that at convex-strategies.com. That's it for me for another podcast. I will see you again soon. Thank you so much for listening.